Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We got a very special guest today, Sean Lake. Uh, we've had you on Drink It Bros before, but I don't think you've been on the show yet. I wanted to get you on here because you have a very interesting story and a, and I think a good outlook on life. So how's it going? It's going good. Thanks for having me. And yep, I I, I got to roll in kind of famously late for my time slot on drinking bros, which uh, I, I, I definitely learned a lesson about uh, how to record and, and get in your window there um, right on the, on the post midterm. So there was a, there was definitely some, some fun conversations we had there and you and I actually, you know, it's funny enough, we, we met back in 2017. So this is the third time we've gotten to have a, a recorded conversation and catch up. Yeah. It's uh it's always a fun time. You've got a very interesting background and outlook on life so let's get let's get into it a little bit um tell me about uh your personal background and then we'll get to the professional stuff where'd you grow up and uh and and yeah we'll we'll dovetail that into your relationship with uh with bub here in a bit yeah absolutely so um you ever seen the tv show wicked tuna uh yeah that sounds familiar so it's a, it's a little fishing town in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Some people know that Sebastian Younger book, The Perfect Storm, 
Uh, it was also a pretty big movie about, I don't know, 25 years ago. Um, anyways, I am from Gloucester, Massachusetts. So I was born in Gloucester, lived there as a young kid. My dad was in the fishing industry. Um, my mom was an economist and kind of an, an eclectic little fishing village that uh, those were my stomping grounds. And then when I was 10, uh, my parents divorced and I moved to Winchester, Massachusetts, which is just outside of Boston, like a stone's throw away. And those were kind of the formative years, you know, like, I don't know, fifth grade through high school. That's where I learned uh, everything I needed to know about skateboarding and punk rock music and uh, sideways sports and hacky sacking and all the all the fun stuff to um, to kind of, I guess, go against the grain, if you will, of uh, everything that was going on around me. And that led me to attempt going to college, dropping out immediately to pursue the dream of becoming a professional snowboarder. So um, snowboarding, this is actually I should probably set the stage. I'm 51. So we're talking about life in the 80s here. Um, dropped out of college my freshman year in 1989, 90. And um moved up to snowbird utah with my best buddy from high school my older brother um basically a couple of winchester transplants that decided that they all wanted to uh you know mess around in the mountains for a year and see what would happen and i was pretty hell-bent on snowboarding i had you know grew up in the mountains of new england vermont new hampshire stuff like that and the marriage of skateboarding in high school and skiing just kind of led to snowboarding, which was in its infancy. So um, much of the horror, my parents dropped out of college. And uh, my dad gave me the famous ditch digger speech. Uh, literally, he's like, he's like, oh, that's what you want to do with your life, huh? huh. All right. Well, you're a failure. And um, that lit a fire under me to prove him wrong and succeed at snowboarding, which I have to think was kind of his secret intent behind that. Um and then my mom just kind of looked at me and said, well, I'm absolutely wasting my money on you going to college with like a 2.5 GPA. So yeah, go get it out of your system and and figure it out. So um, I moved out to Utah with my best buddy from high school, a guy named Glenn Doherty, uh, my older brother, Guy Lake. And we were just teenagers trying to figure out what it's like to live in the mountains. So we, we rented a little apartment in Midvale, Utah, uh, went up to Snowbird, which is a pretty big famous ski resort that Glenn used to go to in high school. I'd never heard of it before. Um, but he was like, yeah, there's this place my dad took me to a couple of times. I think it'd be awesome. Uh, we all got jobs up in the mountains there and that started the journey. I was, I was just hell bent to get better at snowboarding. And that's all I really cared about. College was rear view window for a good while. And, um, you know, I, I set my sights on just, chucking myself down a mountain and seeing what came of it what do you think it was about the snowboarding specifically because it's uh you know most young a-type dudes are looking for some kind of hemingway moment some kind of uh con uh I, I guess combination of mental and physical challenges that somehow represent like uh uh a journey to find who you are as a human being, but also almost like a rite of passage to becoming a, a real adult. You know what I mean? What do you think it was yeah. about snowboarding specifically? Cause it does have a combination of a lot of things as you mentioned, like 
survival in the in the elements and then athletic competition and things like that. And obviously, you know, your brother and your best friend were doing it. So, but what from your perspective, what was it exactly about that that made you and into it? Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting. So I, I joke around here a lot about how badly I sucked at team sports as a kid. Um, probably, you know, my parents were getting a divorce. I wasn't focused, like a lot of upheaval, you know, that that maybe I can pin it on. Or maybe I just am not that coordinated with a ball in hand. Um, certainly that argument's been made at the Little League uh, coaching circles. So... I just sucked at basketball. I, I, you know, I just didn't, I wasn't good at baseball and, but I always had that drive in me and I always wanted to be good at doing whatever it was that I was doing. So my parents were big on individual sports. They were tennis players, they were runners. And I just kind of had that model of watching them be very competitive growing up. And I didn't really think about it at the time. It was just what my parents did. They played tennis and I was, a little kid. So I sat on the side of the court and I had to make myself do stuff. But there was one thing I noticed is that they were willing to bleed to beat each other. And that just kind of like, you know, it's, it's in the air mm. and I was breathing that air. So wait, you're talking about, around, you're talking about your parents. I'm talking about my, my parents at, at this is at a young age. And then right. when I sucked at those team sports, I kind of got drawn into swimming I got drawn into track. I got drawn into doing something and I wasn't the best at it, but I, I liked it. What I found that I had kind of a little, um, a little predisposition for was skiing and snowboarding. Like I just naturally moved down the mountain. It felt really natural to me. Um, you know, I still ski to this day, but snowboarding was this like ultimate marriage of an individual test of getting down the mountain this was also really early stage like snowboarding was very rudimentary back then um and culturally it really spoke to me because i was a teenager i had that kind of like fiery teen angst thing of like well i can't play football or i suck at it so i'm going to go do this this punk rock thing which is skateboarding and then snowboarding so i i was definitely fueled culturally but the drive that i picked up as a kid was the one that made me want to do it better. So dropping out of college to me made the most sense. Like, sure, I yeah. don't need college. I need snowboarding. I need to prove to my dad that I am better than a ditch digger. I need to <laughs> prove to myself that I can climb this mountain and get down it. And I, I just, I had that excitement. So, when, you know, Hemingway moment would be, what are you made of? How do you test? what you're made right. of and yeah it's that's that's an interesting thought because in team sports it's like uh you go through series of practices and familiarizations with each other and stuff like that and it, and it can be difficult to gauge how much progress you're making because it's not just your effort that's being gauged it's a lot of different people's effort right so yeah it's almost like in a in a individual sport you see more uh immediate results from your effort. Like when you're hurtling down the mountain, you know whether or not you got what you were trying to get right, right. Otherwise yeah. you're on your face and ass the whole time, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, learning a trick, you know, on a skateboard, like there is something incredibly satisfying about trying something 500 times and failing at it and then getting it and unlocking that you know, coordination, agility, and fear. Like you're overcoming a fear because every time you fall, it hurts and you get up 
and you do it again. And, you know, there's, I have a ton of respect for skateboarders who really push that limit because they are literally pummeling themselves to get better at this one thing that's very specific to them. Um, and I, I just, I was always drawn to those kind of goals and achievements. It, it was less about the accolades and, and anyone around mm. me. It was about that feeling you get right inside of here to, uh, to, you know, to, to rally it. And then, yeah, there's that peer support of your buddy who sees you land the trick and it's like, yeah. And there's a little fire inside of you that makes you want to go to the next level. And that yeah, that's... level doesn't really have a ceiling. Right. I mean, there's always something new, right? If you if you compare like the 90s X Games to the stuff that's happening now, it looks like two different sports. You know, it's yeah, things advance uh, so quickly. I always really enjoyed that. Um, you know, just one, one of the other things that I'd like about individual sports is that you learn to fall down and get back up on your own, which I think is a really important characteristic to have in life. Um, now, when it comes to skateboarding and snowboarding, quite literally how to fall down, right? And I think that's uh, – I've been watching these guys in the NFL this year especially uh, getting hit and falling to the ground and getting concussed, and they get tackled and they fall down like ragdolls, right? Like they don't know how to to gracefully hit the ground and not suffer serious injury. Like a skateboarder, if you watch a professional skateboarder, yeah, they get injured sometimes. But um, more likely than not, when they miss a trick and fall down, they roll the right way or they they fall the right way where they're not going to get super hurt. But NFL players haven't seemed to fit. Like I watch uh, Tua Tungavaloa from uh, Miami. Every time that dude gets tackled, he's stiff as a board and just falls right back on the back of his head. And yeah. just a little bit of jujitsu or or skateboarding or something like that as a kid would have probably prevented a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Honestly, gymnastics, jujitsu, mm -hmm. um, like those, like how to roll, how to use your body, just, just body awareness. Um, th those things go a long way. It was one of the biggest like kind of regrets I had in snowboarding was that because jujitsu wasn't a thing back then mm -hmm. um, was gymnastics. I was like, man, I really missed the window there. Cause I had friends that had done gymnastics and they're, body awareness was like, you know, way advanced. So I just, you know, I, I just had to learn it, but that's the thing. Like once you fall and like you break a bone, you don't want to fall like that again, but you're not going to give up the sport. So you got to learn how to fall better. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Like it's, you're not, not going to fall. Like I always love that with my kids. I'm watching them now get on a pair of skis and they're like, I didn't fall. And I'm all quick to remind them like, Hey man, every time you fall, you're learning. Every time you fall, you're you're figuring something new out. So don't be afraid to fall because if you don't fall, maybe you're not pushing yourself hard enough. Sure, yeah. I mean, look, that's kind of one of the uh, the maxims in software development. If you release software and it doesn't have any bugs, you waited too long to release it. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. a there there's this um, I, I don't know what you would call it, just an appetite maybe, or, or a tolerance of uh, failure that is necessary if you want to improve throughout your life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you only do uh, things you're good at, that's not really going to work out very well for you. No, 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 not at all. Which is why I'm now the assistant coach at Little League Baseball, which is like just with the God's most cruel, cruel, uh, you know, card to dish me. But I'm mm -hmm. like, all right, I guess I'm in. 
don't watch me throw do what yeah. i say not what yeah. i do yeah yeah well you know it is what it is it's it's uh hopefully i think your attitude is probably more important at this point in little league than your uh your ability and i mean you as a father just because that early athletic competition with kids has been watered down so much at this point it's like they don't learn the the whole point of it isn't to to put them in a feeder system and see which kids are and are not going to be professional athletes because yeah that's just not that's not how it goes right there's not going to be a whole lot of professional athletes uh that come out of uh childhood athletics but the team sports and the individual sports, they all teach lessons. That's the point. Yeah. And it seems like we've done to that what we've done to a lot of stuff in society, which is remove the lesson to make it more comfortable for the child, which I don't I don't know that that's something that's ever been done in human history, except for, for maybe like maybe an aristocratic class that's happened from time yeah, to time, like but coddling. for regular people. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe coddling at the most seen, like, you know, upper echelons of society and like, look where that got them, um, you know, diminishing ranks over time. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go ahead and say, you know, I want the bumps and bruises. And, you know, it's something I always got to remind my wife to like, like, hey, good, good. He, he fell down. All right. Mm -hmm. Good. Got a scrape. And you'll do it better next time. And, you know, in the team sports setting, like, you know, I, I do not have an alpha athlete kid but i've got a really enthusiastic kid who wants to play with his friends right so we're you know there's gonna be some lessons unlocked there and and we're we're watching it i mean the parent crew that i'm with is definitely they are aware of that watered down but they're aware of that everyone gets a trophy and we're definitely trying to like we get where the kind of like rules of the league are but how mm. do we keep ours special how do we like push our kids a little bit harder show a little pride in, in what they're doing be teammates, um, support each other. Like just these lessons that are going to be ingrained in them, hopefully for, you know, decades to come. So it is interesting. And I mean, and going back to snowboarding, it's an individual sport, but there is a community inside of it that I also was really drawn to. There is the idea of like, you guys are doing something together that's different and you're, you're, you're defining something new. Um, that was a pretty special you know, I guess moment in time to be a part of. So mm -hmm. I think snowboarding in the nineties, kind of like X game in the nineties, like you were inventing something. It was, it was the first time it hadn't been refined to where it is today. Like I look at the sport today and it's next level. Yeah. That's um, crazy. yeah. Especially the, I, big, I especially the big jump part. That's the one like I, I watch all sorts of athletic competition and uh, I have been to war literally. And one of the things that really, uh, where I'm like, where I just pause for a second, like, oh shit, is the big jump. I swear to God, every time I watch that, I'm like, how are these people alive? I, every yeah. now and again, there's an accident, but they, it's that one is incredibly difficult to do and very dangerous. So yeah, it's this this sport is almost unrecognizable from what it was back then when yeah. it first started. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges is to make it relatable mm. at you know, at that kind of junior level so that people are are willing to get started with it and like keep it aspirational, you know, and definitely like that's something I'm enjoying seeing skiing do a lot right now is skiing has definitely kind of pulled it back to uh mm. to get people on boarded and 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 make them feel real comfortable doing it, get them in there and then be like, but look what you can do. Yeah, yeah. And for just sure, yeah. you know, push into the future. So it's it's fun stuff. But like that was a that was a neat uh, kind of unscripted chapter to go through in my twenties was 
to try and climb the ranks in snowboarding and, and make a career out of it, make a job out of it, pay the rent. And, you know, I didn't have great goals with it other than I wanted the experience. I didn't have like a map and a plan of like, you know, I'm going to go to college for four years and then I'm going to get my first job and I'm going to make X amount of money. And this is where I want to be when I'm 30. I never, ever mapped my life like that. What I did was very much live for those moments. And the goal, the future goal was kind of, it was just built around snowboarding. It was built around the experience. And I was like, Hey, if I could pay my rent doing this, yes. Uh, right, so yeah. they were, you know, they were smaller micro goals and it worked out. You know, I got you know, some early endorsements and, you know, when you get your first free snowboard, it's a big moment. Like it's a magical moment. Like, holy shit, I just got a free snowboard. And then, you know, the outerwear and the goggles. And then someone says, hey, here's some travel budget. Go somewhere. You're like, wait, what? I can travel and snowboarding is going to pay for me to have an experience. Um, and it kind of built on itself. And, that, you know, there was a couple of good years in there where snowboarding paid for college. Mm-hmm. Snowboarding helped buy my first house. Um, snowboarding, you know, like it, it, it paid the bills. And that was pretty sweet. Now, at the exact same time, my brother gave up on that dream. Uh, well, you know, right away, went back to college. Glenn, my other buddy, was right there with me. Um, we were roommates half the time, and this was in the 90s. So all of a sudden, all the free boxes are starting to show up at our mm. pad, and I've got all the extra goggles. I'm handing them out to my bros. And Glenn's like, man, like I'm arguably a better athlete than you are, Sean, and I'm not getting any free shit yet. I'm like, sucks to be a skier. This episode of Citizen is brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Join the Black Rifle Coffee Club and get fresh roasted freedom delivered straight to your door. Black Rifle Coffee Company is veteran operated and supports America's military, law enforcement, and first responders. Get premium coffee delivered every month. Choose your favorite roast, rounds, and delivery schedule anytime you like. Members also get free shipping and access to exclusive partner discounts. The best value you're going to get from Black Rifle Coffee is the coffee club. As again, you can choose the roast, whether you're like light, dark, or medium. You can choose the texture. You can choose whether you want uh, ground coffee, whether you want to grind it yourself and get whole bean, or if you use a Keurig and you want the coffee rounds and the delivery schedule with a wide uh, array of options for that. Get 20% off your first order with the code CITIZEN. So go to blackriflecoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, use the code CITIZEN, and get 20% off your first order. This episode of CITIZEN is also brought to you by Ghostbed dot com forward slash drinky bros right now ghostbed is offering 40 percent off ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base for everything else 30 percent off if you use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros if you get the uh 40 off deal if you use the 40 off bundle deal you're going to get uh, a mattress and all your stuff your base your sheets your pillows all this stuff for about 30 to 35 bucks a month They've got a zero down, zero percent financing plan for up to 60 months, six zero months. That's five years, uh, about the lifespan of the average bed. So it works out great for you. Works out great for uh, the company. So go check it out. Go to ghostbed.com for slash drinking bros. Whether you're in the market for a bed, uh, an adjustable base, whether you just need sheets or pillows or any of that stuff, they got the best. The mattress protector, the weighted blanket. They have everything you need there. 30% off everything. Use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. Or if you need that adjustable base as well and the mattress, get the bundle and everything else you add onto that deal is 40% off. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babble.com 
forward slash citizen. Now, one of the most exciting things about the new year, about any new year, is that you have uh, no idea what adventures are in store for you throughout the year, what you're going to be doing travel-wise, uh, if you're going to get a new job, picking up new skills. There's no better way to prepare for 2023 than by learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel is the language learning app that has sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Uh, thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons, you can feel confident no matter where the new year takes you. Uh, I'm personally planning on going to Eastern Europe later this year. Um, we're going to go to probably the Caribbean or Mexico or maybe both. So I'm going to bone up on a little bit of at least the conversational stuff so I don't sound like an idiot, right? Uh, with Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete an individual lesson so you can start having real-life conversations in a new language in as little as three weeks. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans. Uh, but Babbel, lessons were created by over 150 language experts and voiced by real native speakers, not computers, so you can get that real authentic accent. Um, you can choose from up to 14 languages. Uh, they, they have speech recognition technology, which, again, will help you improve your pronunciation and accent. And there's a bunch of different ways to learn. In addition to the lessons, you can listen to podcasts, games. Uh, you can uh, play games. There's video stories, even live classes sometimes. So uh, the last part of that is it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So if you're not thrilled with it, if it just doesn't do what it what you need it to do, then you can get your money back. But I promise you that will not be the case. I've used this myself. It's very effective. Start your language, uh, new language learning journey today with Babbel right now. Get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash American. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash American for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to get on, um, on the new thing. But that's this is a really yeah. interesting uh, story because a lot of people do, I guess, bet on themselves they take chances they leave things behind uh, jobs they don't like or school or whatever it is um but the way that you lay it out is the way to me that it makes sense and i think you know you can't do one without the other so yeah you take the chance and you bet on yourself but as the results come in as the revenue starts to come in you it, you don't just assume that that's going to last forever you use it to build other infrastructure right you buy a yeah. home or you use it to pay your way through school or you start a business with it or something like this, right? Where it's going to turn into more money for you down the road. Because look, no matter how good you are at something athletically, eventually you're not going to be able to do it anymore. Um, Bingo. And you don't know if it's going to be just a moment in time where there's a two or three year period where you're really hyper successful. And then all of a sudden it's gone entirely. Right. Um, yeah. It's happened to a lot of people, especially over the last couple of years, a lot of people have lost businesses and you know, I, I want people to take those risks because I like the ingenuity. I like the uh I like the creator economy that we're in now where you can, you know, if you make the right moves and work hard enough, you can really make something for yourself these days. But you're not gonna do that if the checks come in and you start buying stupid shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's not what that's not what it's all about. That's not being self made. That's just being a child, to be honest. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because like when you're on your own as a teenager and you're you're accountable for your rent and your food, you're not, I, I believe, I mean, at least the way I took it was, it, I lived pretty humbly. It was mm. like crash on your buddy's couch, like rent the closet. Don't rent the bedroom. That's too expensive. Rent the closet because you can put your mattress in the closet and, and be just fine. Um, 
scrounging the, the couch cushions for quarters to to go down to 7-Eleven and get, get a meal. Like there was all of those moments built into this. So when the snowboard money came in, it was never lavish lifestyle. It was, no, no, man. Like, what are you going to do with this? Like, you hold on to this. And Glenn, my, my best buddy at the time, he was always really good with money. He always saved. So I had this good example right next to me of like, hey, don't be a dickhead. Mm. Like, you're not going to go out and try and buy some car that you can't afford. It was, no, no, no. Buy a responsible vehicle and make it work. And so the flashiness was just never there. It was never a part of the program, which is you know, which is great because I've carried that through. Like once you've done that sure. for almost a decade, even when you have started to make more money, um, that just means you get more opportunity to sure. save and invest and do something else with it. So that's that's always been kind of built into it. And uh, part of that, anyways. a big part of that is, especially in the younger years, is not giving a shit what other people think. Um, not not that you genuinely don't get don't care at all what they think, but prioritizing the goal, the effort the optimization, the organization over uh, the, I guess, the outward appearance, right? Because yeah. you can't spend pride that that yeah. you can't buy anything with your pride. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that's a big problem for a lot of people that are starting out early. They're too, um, too proud or not humble enough, or they're worried about how people are going to think about them because they're doing this or that. And then, you know, we, there were guys like that in the army. There was this, um, <clears throat> This guy that was getting out right around the time that I showed up at the eighty second airport, and he was what like for his entire military career, everybody thought he was kind of a goofy weirdo um because he never did anything he never spent any of his money. But when he got out of the army after four years as a specialist and had eighty five thousand dollars in the bank while everybody else had debt, right? They were yeah. like, oh, that was really smart of him. It's like, yeah, it was really smart of him. That's a really good idea. But at the time, you know, he had to put up with people talking shit. And sometimes oh, yeah. you're going to have to put up with people talking shit. That's just the way it goes. Yeah. You know, it's funny because in snowboarding, it's no different. There there was definitely that element to it. But, you know, like I, and I'll be the first one to say it. I wasn't the most talented snowboarder. I had to put in a way more work than a lot of other guys. Like there were guys that could strap a board on their feet. Like, the, you know, the ones I mentioned had gymnastics backgrounds and they were just dancing down the hill. I had to work really hard to be able to do that. So with me and snowboarding, like part of the reason I, I got to where I got wasn't because I was the best snowboarder, but it was because I was willing to put some work in. And I, I realize that now that, yeah, like I showed up for the photo shoots at five o'clock in the morning or, or like I was there to do the work when it wasn't that much fun. But if you do it, Hey, you're reliable. If you're reliable, they're going to want you back if you're willing to do the work. And you just have to not give a fuck what everyone else is saying. Like snowboarding was punk rock in the nineties. So like there was a certain element in it that was like, you know, guys got by on personality mm -hmm. and like they could be super talented and then just be kind of assholes and that like built their persona or whatever. And I never had that. I just did me, which was more based on like, I just really want to ride more. Yeah. And it carried me through, which is, which is great. I look back at it now and I'm like, yeah, you today, you couldn't get away with that shit anymore. You you no. got to show up and do the work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, you, you learned the lessons, though, and uh, you took those into the business world and have been pretty successful. Tell me about some of your business ventures. Well, not Bubs yet. We'll get to that later. But tell me some of your other business adventures. Yeah. So so like when I was turning 25, 
you know, Glenn, he split. He decided that skiing wasn't going to work. He went and joined the Navy. I, and you know that we'll probably talk about that a little bit. But for me, that same moment of inflection of like, what am I going to do? I was at probably peak earning and kind of like the height of snowboarding for me personally. But I knew there was an end game. So that whole planning thing finally kicked into gear where I was like, I should probably get that college degree that I, I left when I was 18. So I went back to college. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was 29, turning 30, I recognized like the writings on the wall. So I called every one of my sponsors in the fall of the, whatever it was, 2001, 2002, uh, fall of 2001, I think. And I quit every one of my sponsors. I said, guys, it's been great. This is awesome. But I'd rather quit than get fired. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to get washed out of snowboarding. It's about to happen. So I'm just going to quit ahead of time. And because there were these new kids coming up that were just on fire. And I got my degree and I was ready for what's next. So the plan was I got a degree in political science. I was going to go to the State Department, take the mm -hmm. civil service exam and go become a State Department operative. I wanted to travel the world. That was still part of the the goal in all of this was life experience. So I'll, I'll go join the State Department. I was like, felt really good about that. Um, maybe, you know, get to carry a gun and protect someone or who knows, like you just, I, I didn't really know where it was going. I just, I knew the civil service exam was mm -hmm. the next goal. So it's January of 2002 and I get a phone call from one of my old teammates in snowboarding. And he's like, Hey, uh, Burton snowboards needs a new team manager. And I was like, uh, I, yeah, I got a plan. And he's like, no, you, you don't understand. Like this could be an amazing job. You're going to travel the world. Like it's snowboarding and you're going to be like running the team. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know. Well, I, I believe in a lot of things. If you present yourself correctly, um, good things will happen. So in, in part of this was, I just didn't give a fuck because I was going to go and join the state department. Uh, I applied for the job. I said, sure. You know what? I got time to kill. I can't take the exam for like six months. Mm -hmm. So I apply for the job and I get granted an interview. And then the interview flies me to San Diego where I live now in Encinitas. And I go and meet with like the team director and marketing people um, at Burton. And they start describing the job to me. And they're like, well, what would you do in this? And I said, I started rattling off everything that I hated about my snowboard career. Product that didn't show up on time, mm -hmm. team managers that didn't book flights, all that shit. I'm like, well, I'd fix all those things. And they're like, you're hired. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was like, well, okay, how much does this job pay? It paid like five times more than I was making. And it paid way more than the state department was going to pay me, you know, in six months. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh man. So I did a little soul searching. I said, okay, well, fuck it. What, like who, who am I going to manage? They're like, well, you're going to work with Sean White. Okay. He lives in Carlsbad. He's 16 years old. So I literally moved to San Diego and I posted up with Sean White for a year and took him around all the major competitions. And it was like grad school for, for marketing and business working at Burton. I wasn't there very long, but man, learned a ton. Sean's a great kid. Um, despite all the shit that you can kind of hear about, I was like, I was mm -hmm. like, he's a great kid. Like, and he is determined and hell bent on winning and, and that's awesome. And then I rolled into working with the X games after that. Um, so that this was is like, stint. this is peak Sean White and peak X games time. Yeah. And maybe yep, so. I guess peak Burton time as well. 
Kind of. I, I mean, it was those were great years to to mm. be a part of that. So that was a, I worked for X Games like was it like oh four oh five, and then I did a short stint with Tony Hawk, and I managed one of his skate park tours, and that was you know like on a four or five month gig, and it was awesome. I mean, you talk about a well oiled machine. So we're talking about skateboarders who effectively is like herding kittens to try and get them to go and do anything, but Tony is this patriarch of the sport. So when he invites you to go on one of his tours, you show up. And mm-hmm. it was my job to make sure that everyone got from point A to point B every single time. And we did this big North American tour around. It was crazy. And right on the back end of it, I get shoulder tapped uh, by a guy named Ken Block, um, who recently passed away, mm-hmm. um, who is the co-founder of DC Shoes. And he asked me to come in and lead his marketing department. So uh, sports marketing for everything but a skate at DC. And I'm like, Oh my God, like talk about a crazy opportunity that I have full imposter syndrome, you know, at the time, like I don't deserve this. Um, but Ken trusted me with his snowboard, his BMX moto program. And he was just getting this new sport called rally off the ground. So, um, I went there for almost, I think I was there for six years, um, right through almost 2011, and I shaped the whole snowboard program at DC. We launched a whole head to toe program. Um, I mean, those were banana years to be there with like Dave Mira and Travis Pastrana, mm-hmm. uh, Ricky Carmichael and, you know, Corey Bohan and, you know, Chad Kagey, like these crazy names that were all the winners of all the X Games medals. Um, and, uh, and everyone in snowboarding that I got to work with, like I was on top of the podium at Torstein Horgmo when he won his first X Games, Haldor, Devin Walsh, like Ika Backstrom, these, these names that maybe don't mean a lot to anyone listening, but you just do a Google search on them. And you're like, all these guys won X Games gold medals. Mm-hmm. Some of them went to the Olympics and it was an amazing time to be very entrepreneurial, which is what I realized on, you know, kind of reflecting back that a lot of those jobs along the way they were self-driven. You didn't have like, do your widget report here. Um, and, you know, those were little elements of it, but you were starting out to define someone's career or a marketing initiative. And it was a super fun time to be a part of those sports. Yeah. But I mean, a big like herding cats for sure. It had to be even, even with some of the top level guys. Uh, I love Travis, but Jesus Christ, getting him to, uh, He's just getting pulled in so many different directions, I guess. That it, it's, and he's it's, been it's, and it's been happening to him since he was a teenager. Yeah, yeah, for a very long time. Yeah, that's interesting. The DC shoes thing is really interesting. And then you know, uh, at some point, uh, well, let's let's get into Glenn because I think this is. Um, yeah, there, I, there there's I, definitely some some parallel journeys yeah, going yeah. on going with my best buddy there. Yeah, I think um, a lot of your story is is also his story. So I think it's important to come back to that and uh, tell tell me about you know your relationship with him growing up and then kind of how you guys you know I guess stuck together over the years. Yeah, you know it is interesting. Like you look back at your best buddies over different chapters, and I think everyone like we have a lot of friends that fall into chapters in our lives, and for some of us, there's very few that transcend all of those chapters. And, you know, Glenn and I were both middle children. We had an older brother, younger sister, our older brother, younger sister, everyone was spaced evenly apart. Um, so we kind of had that middle kid 
thing. Like you're not really seen as much and you're probably going to be the black sheep and you're probably going to make rebellious decisions. And we both fit that mold to a T. So as you know, 13 to 15 year old kids, we were just like, I see you. Let's go fuck shit up on the side. And then let's hope we don't get caught, but we actually really want our parents to notice us or, you know, whatever the hell that's Mm -hmm. all about. Um, So when we took off to college, Glenn was a year older than me and we kind of regrouped after my freshman year, the move to snowbird was this like hatching of an evil plan. It was like, how do we win life? How do we do this for us? And, And we just, we were wired to think that way. And, you know, Glenn to set the stage, Glenn was this larger than life personality. I've said that before. Like he walks into a room, lights it up. He walks into a room. People get just get excited about being around him. And he Mm -hmm. tells stories that are about 30% real, 70% fabrication. And you're hooked on every word. Um, He slept with half the women in the room, guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And you're surprised because some of them weren't attractive, but he made sure they felt attractive. Um, (laughs) And he just had that charisma. So he and I were, you know, we just, we just clicked and, you know, this guy goes and tours with the Grateful Dead one summer with my brother. Like we were, I think I was 17. He was 18. Cause he, again, he was a year older than me. And then he comes back and he's like, I want to be a river raft guide. Like all these crazy jobs that just fed into this very eclectic adventure seeking lifestyle that we both strove for. Um, so when he took off, you know, that one summer we, we regrouped and it was like, what's next? And it's like, let's drop out of college. And, and he's like, well, let's move to Snowbird. Like Snowbird's the spot. I'm like, I've never even heard of that place, Utah. What's that? Mm-hmm. And we're just like, yeah, we had this one Mormon girl in high school. We're like, is that, are all the people like that? <laughs> so, you know, there's no internet. So we're just figuring it out with a rotary dial phone going, let's go to Utah. Um, We move out there and, you know, immediately established this motley crew of eclectic ski bums from all over the world. And Glenn just collected people Mm -hmm. throughout his whole life. He's always collected people and he saw things in people that maybe they didn't see in themselves. And he just kind of elevated those around him. Like he just kind of leveled you up and I don't want to pump him up too much because you know, he's still human, Mm -hmm. but he's not here to defend himself either. So I can talk some shit. Um, (laughs) But Glenn just, you know, he brought out the best in a ton of people and, and myself included. So, well, we know people going like that too. Like Jared is like that as well. Just yeah, yeah like for, for some reason, the way his brain is uh, built, it's like you meet four people and your brain tries to weave those four people into a framework that makes sense. And, and a byproduct of that is, hey, you guys should get together and talk about this or whatever. Like you see things like that happen a lot with people like that, with people like Jared and Glenn. It's really interesting how it works. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And, and, you know, again, more on reflection now than, than when we were in real time. So by the time we turned 24, Glenn had been a ranch hand, a river guide, you know, did the whole tour with the grateful dead. We painted houses together, like just all this eclectic adventure stuff. And I had made it on the snowboarding path and he hadn't made it as a skier. And again, really talented skier, but you know, wrong time, wrong, wrong space in history. Um, skiing wasn't really taking care of his people the way snowboarding was on this explosive growth. So he goes on a surf trip to Costa Rica. He's 24 years old. He comes back and he's like, Sean, 
I'm going to swear you to secrecy here. Because remember, we're in ski bum culture. Like mm. everyone's stoned, everyone's drinking, everyone's, you know, long hair, shaggy. Fuck, my hair is bright purple at the time. And he's like, I met these Navy SEALs down in Costa Rica and I spent some time with them. And they really told me I, I have what it takes to, like, I should check this out. And I'm like, what? Navy SEALs? Like, isn't there like a VHS movie from Charlie Sheen that we should rent and like do some research on this? Yeah. And literally we rented the movie to watch it or, you know, whatever. And we're like, wow. And he's like, yeah, don't tell anyone. Like, don't tell our friends. They won't understand. But if I haven't made it as a pro skier by the time I'm 25, I got one year, I'm going to join the Navy. Turns 25, hasn't made it as a pro skier. I drive him to the Navy recruiter in Sandy, Utah. And he walks right on in there, long shaggy hair, signs his contract to to join, and you know, a month later he's off to basic. And so this is like 1995. Um, and all of a sudden, my best friend went from ski bum, and you know, he's in basic, and then a year later, he's going to buds, and and then he's going to he's graduating, and I get the phone call from him to make it down to Coronado. And in, in classic snowboard shaggy fashion, three of our buddies, Chad Z, Marty Weishart, myself, road trip from Utah down to Coronado and roll up onto the grinder for his buzz graduation about 15 minutes late, like come screeching in the back end of it, walk in there, all heads turn, Glenn's up on stage getting pinned, just shaking his head at us. <laughs> And, uh, and that was the start of this great merging of friendships between, you know, NSW and SEAL Team 3 and the guys that Glenn worked with and this action sports kind of counterculture movement, which are not that dissimilar. Um, you know, it's funny when you said earlier, I give pause when I see, you know, big air at X Games, like, mm -hmm. holy shit, there was this phenomenal friendship that developed out of like the culture of sport meeting um, some crazy, you know, military operators. And I wouldn't have guessed it, but you know, I mean, these were my friends for you know last 20 years. Yeah. There was a guy, uh, man, I can't, I think his name's Jason. He played guitar for uh, Pearl jam for a bit, but he was a special forces operator and then a skier as well, or a snowboarder as well. And then there, it's, it's very common actually more, it, more than it, I would think. More than you would think, but then when you really think about it, it's like, oh, no, that kind of makes sense. I mean, it's like individualist people who are also like really in, they, they want to perform individually, but they're really into the team element and camaraderie. Yes. It, may, it makes a lot of sense, I think, if you think yep. about it. And that was something for, for Glenn, like when he, before he joined the Navy, he was like, I want to see what I'm made of. I want to see what's in here. And I was like, hey, that's me and snowboarding. Like, I want to see what I'm made of. I want to, I want to test this out. And so Glenn joined. I got stationed on the West Coast. A couple years later, I'm working with Sean White up at, you know, in, in Encinitas, my best buddies in Coronado. And it was like getting the band back together. So, you know, he had a couple years there where I was still in Utah and he was down here. And then we linked it all back up. And next thing you know, like we're, we're thick as thieves again. Um, it was it was really neat to be able to do. We had our Winchester chapter. We had our Utah chapter and a very long San Diego chapter of, you know, just my best buddy and really a brother who's in and out of my life. Like, you know, he gets married, I get married, 
he gets divorced, I get divorced. Like these major life changes are happening and we're just right there to, you know, to be a sounding board, to, to share, commiserate, to kiss and moan and bitch. And, uh, you know, ultimately to just celebrate life. And we had that for a long time. And a lot of people look at their best friends and, and look at that over time. And it's like, it's very rare that you would get to be, you know, we were roommates when we we're 40 years old. We were roommates when we were 20 years old right. and a couple of chapters in between. And, you know, a lot of women in between and partners and locations and friends and uh, just a, a shit ton of memories that I really enjoyed the fact that, that he did something that was totally true to him. Like mm -hmm. joining the Navy was Glenn's way of testing himself, seeing what he was made of, joining the community and being a, a great contributor. When that was something he always did. Um, he just, again, he was always leveling up and that becomes infectious. Like you, you can't help but have that, you know, hopefully rub off on you. And, yeah, and, sure. and that was, you know, a huge part of our relationship. So, yeah. And he was, uh, uh, it, it that that whole thing became i guess what defined him as a human being that like tenacity and refusal to fucking fail or quit is just a big oh, yeah. part of who he was i mean before uh his knees were fucked before 911 complete yep. reconstruction on both knees i think if i'm not mistaken and yeah uh, he had he had surgeries on both knees he yeah. went one knee and then the other knee mm. and and he was destroyed like he you know all the impact years of skiing didn't help but then mm. um all that time and you know going through buds and yeah he just got the shit kicked out of him but 9-11 happens and he stays in anyways and then yep. not only that but spends another he, he's what spends another five years there and then another seven before he was killed uh in working for grs so i mean it's yep. just you know you're not gonna, you're not gonna find a tougher guy out there. And it wasn't toughness just for its own sake. You know what I mean? It was always about like people have seen the movie and read the book and read the stories and all that stuff. But he didn't. He didn't have to be there, right? No, no. When, when you look at down. thirteen hours, uh, you know, if you look at the Benghazi chapter, there's there's elements of that that are just Glenn to a fucking T. And, and who he was as a human. So yeah, he served 10 years in the Navy. He got his knees rebuilt. He was going to get out. He didn't. Instead, he's like, I'm going to run an Ironman in the middle of my time in the Navy. Like those are the kind of things that he would pull off. And, and, and then he does. And then his knees are like, they're back. So he's like, well, I got to test them. So let's go. Um, you know, multiple combat deployments. And then he transitions out and he's and this is important. Like it was the first time in Glenn's life. He didn't know exactly what he wanted to do next. So he's like, I'm going to get my college degree. Gets out of the Navy. First thing he does is he rips out his bachelor's degree and he does it down in San Diego and he's doing it while like, you know, he's got to make some money. He starts deploying and he's doing private security. And then he ends up very quickly falling in with GRS and, mm -hmm. and contracting directly for the CIA and that was his gig for, yeah, like, you know, six, seven years. And the whole time he's gone for three months, he's home for three months, gone for four, back for two. Like it was this constant cycle. Uh, I mean, that's where he got to know Evan Hafer. Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course, you know, like meeting the whole crew of, of operators like, you know, Ray Cash Care, like they, you know, they didn't serve together in the Navy as much as they contracted together and worked overseas together. And like this amazing network of awesome humans who are changing the game in the private sector 
And those were all just his buddies. That's just who he ran with. And that's like, again, it shows the crowd. But, you know, when Benghazi rolled around, at this point, he's 42 years old. He's he's turning 43. His body is arguably shattered. We're CrossFit, like we're in this CrossFit crew together, mm-hmm. kicking the shit out of each other. And we're just like, man, when does the free HGH start to pour in? Because this yeah, know, is getting right? rough. <laughs> and... And he heads over to Tripoli on his last deployment in September of 2012. And at that point, he had kind of solved the what's next. He's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go to PA school, physician's assistant school at the University of Utah. I've got it all planned out. This is my last deployment. I've saved a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, you know, like, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to go and do the next thing. I had met Heather, who was going to become my wife, and she was moving into the house. Glenn was going there and was like, hey, man, I'm probably going to move out in a couple months, too. Like, we'll we'll figure all this stuff out in the future, but like divergent paths. And it was awesome because Glenn had figured that thing out. He's like, I know what I'm going to do next. And and it took him years to get there. Um, and I don't think that's uncommon when you're transitioning out of a highly skilled job. Mm-hmm what to do next doesn't always fall into place, whether it's entrepreneurial or, you know, whatever the thing is, like, you don't always know what that's going to be. Um, but he finally unlocked that goes to Tripoli and then nine 11 happens. The nine 11 of 2012, the terror attacks in Benghazi. So Glenn's in Tripoli and his buddy Tyrone Woods is down in Benghazi and you know like they did some onboarding together in GRS and he's like I gotta I mean I there my teammates are down there all mm-hmm. my people are down there my friends are down there and he was moving mountains to get through the red tape and the bullshit to get from Tripoli down to Benghazi one of the best stories I heard about this exchange is you know I'll, I'll tell it now but it's you know kind of off the record was Glenn started calling his bank to see if he could get his bank because of the time change um, to wire over like forty, fifty thousand dollars to rent the plane that they didn't have permission to use so that he could hop on the plane and fly to Benghazi. And he'd assemble like there was a team of people that were ready to go, um, but they didn't have a fucking plane. So he was trying to get his own plane like that's Glenn in, to a T. Um his bosses at the CIA eventually mustered up a plane and Glenn flies, you know, two and a half, three hours from Tripoli to join this fight in the middle of the night down in Benghazi. And he gets there and there's immediately more red tape. It's militia shit where like they weren't being allowed to leave the airport to go to the CIA annex. Eventually, you know, a couple more hours goes by and this is all during the whole 13 hours timeline. Glenn gets into the CIA annex and first thing he does, help others. Goes right in and starts administering um, medical first aid to, you know, all the Americans that got fucked up over at the consulate and patch some people up. And he's like, you know, where's Tyrone? And, and I'm hearing this from the guys that were on the ground and I've, I've spent some time talking, you know, with Tonto and some of the other cats that they were part of the author group of 13 hours. And then some of the other state department folks that were, you know, on the ground there. And they're just telling me intimate 
stories about like what it meant in that time. And it just reinforces who he was. First thing he does hits the ground, runs right into danger. Like the most dangerous place you can be is that CIA annex. And he goes right in and he makes sure everyone's okay. All right. As soon as they're okay, he's like, I got to get on that rooftop. And as I understand it, he rolls right up onto the rooftop with Ty and they just start popping bad guys left and right. And I mean, like video game style. And those guys gave it to the enemy really, really good. And there were three mortar strikes that happened um, not long after Glenn got on that roof. You know, we're talking a couple of minutes. I, I don't think it was up there for more than a half hour. And one goes short, one goes long, they're triangulating, and the third one hits the roof. And Glenn and Ty were hit. Um, they didn't die instantly, which in a lot of ways sucks. Mm. Um, but they both died on that rooftop. And, you know, the rest of the enemies, it was right at dawn. Um, Visibility is there. Bad guys back off. They get out of there. Um, Glenn and Tyre pulled off the roof. And the rest of the team that were there successfully, you know, get out of the annex back to the airport where the airplane that Glenn helped secure is waiting for them. And I get a phone call. And the phone call happens, you know, it's like, I don't know, lunchtime or something in San Diego, the morning of the 12th. And, you know, I get this call and I, I would never answer the phone from an unknown number. Like I very rarely, I'm a, I'm a big screener of calls. I'm like, all right, I should take this call. Just that little voice in my head said that. And I fucking knew right away. Like, is this Sean Lake? Yes. I need you to return to your home and we'll meet you there. Okay. And I had heard the news, like going to bed the night before, um, something popped up on the news about like, some sort of skirmish. And I wrote Glenn a quick email. I'm like, hey, man, be careful over there because we always communicated when he was overseas. Mm -hmm. Mostly it was him writing me notes saying, don't kill my fucking plants. Um, and I, I, I would, just for the record. Sorry mm -hmm. about that. Um, but, you know, I just wrote him that quick note. And then the next morning just had that uneasy feeling. But I'm like, no, Glenn's in Tripoli, man. He's like fucking hours away from, from any bad stuff happening. He'll be fine. And um, I drive to the house. And just like in the movies, Dan, there's, there's two black mm -hmm. SUVs parked directly in front of the house. I drive up and they hop out of the car. And they're all wearing black suits. And, you know, they confirm my identity. Mr. Lake, yep. Uh, we're regretful to inform you that Glenn Doherty died in Benghazi. Uh, they couldn't tell me the things that I just shared with you because they didn't know it was all happening kind of in real time. And they said, you know, you're Glenn's listed next of kin. And we have to ask you permission to notify his mother. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go right away. And then it was just like, boom, my whole life just shifted. Um, you know, I was the executive of Glenn's estate. I was just listed next to Ken. I was in charge of all of his legal affairs. So it was, it was go time. And I just went into it and, you know, there was all this media. There was a ton of attention around it. Thank God my wife, Heather works in the media. You know, she, she knows how to manage those things. So she mm -hmm. kept me away from all of that. 
Um, next thing you know, I'm, I'm flying to Boston for a very big national funeral. I'm sitting down with his family. I'm reviewing like best practices of what to do. And, you know, it's funny because Glenn had this fucking wicked sense of humor behind it too. But a year before Glenn died, we sat down and we're like, you know, we're both in our forties now. We should probably have wills. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. He's like, okay. And Glenn led the charge on this because he was the organized one. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm going to leave all my debt to you. And I'm like, oh, that's great. I'm going to do the same thing to you. So we, here we are like leaving each other's shit in each other, you know, in, in charge of each other's crap. And we're like, yeah, that's great, but we're going to live forever. So it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, all right. Like it just got real. So Glenn had this one desire. He's like, I want you to take all my shit and sell it and throw the most epic party ever. Like just send it. Like I want everyone just raging, go on heli trips and surf trips and like do all that. I'm like, I don't think you've got that much money, but we'll figure it out. Um, so when Glenn died, you know, that celebrating his legacy again was, was, was key. Glenn's sister, Kate, came up with the idea of starting a foundation to help special operators transition out of active duty to civilian life. And that was the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation, which I'm really proud to say has issued over 100 scholarships uh, as of the fall. I think they're they're probably like 110 now. Um, Just helping fill gaps in the GI Bill, get special operators, their families through the burdensome, you know, time of transitioning out and, and and going to school, build those skill sets, like level up, mm-hmm. figure that out. It was very on Glenn to, to get behind something like that. Um, and then I, I took his estate and, and his funds and I, I divided it by four. I said, okay, well, Kate, here's a fourth. Glenn's mom, here's a fourth. Greg is older brother. Here's a fourth. And I'm going to take a fourth and I'm going to invest it. And I'm going to take that money and I'm going to go on heli trips and I'm going to go on surf trips and I'm going to take Glenn's friends and we're going to celebrate. Um, gone to three Patriots games with a half dozen buddies that we all went to high school with. And I would just, I'll splurge and, and rent the condo for mm-hmm. the house, buy the, buy the tickets to the game. Like just shit that keeps the crew connected, keeps everyone bound together. And, and that's what Glenn would want. So, you know, like, celebrating a legacy keeping a memory alive like people don't die if you don't forget them yeah and what they stood for one of the uh the the last in our list of principles for this show is um i will live a life worth dying for and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people but for me it means that it means recognizing all the sacrifice and work that it took to get us where we are right now. And and the men and women who provided that work and sacrifice and living a life that honors them and that, and that, and that effort that they put forth. And I think uh, the uh, Glenn Doherty foundation and bubs do a really good job of that. Thanks, man. You you don't always get to see that, but it's nice to see it this time. Yeah. You know, it's, the bubs the whole bubs deal right like bub was glenn's call sign mm-hmm. in the navy and the brand really just it, it came about at this great confluence of events like the foundation was up and running the 13 hours movie had come and gone 
and the foundation was also like kind of plateaued. Like they weren't raising much money. Um, and we were talking about that as a long game. My wife introduced me to collagen. Mm-hmm. And she's like, hey, like I did a new segment on this stuff. You should take it. It's, it's supposed to be really good for you. You're not getting any younger. And I was like, uh, thanks, dear. All right. Um, let me let me check this out. And it's straight up fountain of youth shit. I mean, mm-hmm. collagen is, you know, it, it's it's a most abundant protein in your body. It's a glue kind of holding us together. And we're not making any more of it after you turn 20. So, right. hey, it's time to level it up. So I start taking it. And just like what it says on the jar, hair, skin, nails, joint health, gut health, muscle recovery, like all the things start happening and after two months of taking this product, like my knees felt like I was 30 years old again. Mm-hmm. Like I felt fucking great. And TJ Ferreira, a, a buddy of mine who's a longtime e-commerce expert, comes by the house. He sees the jar. And we were pitching a few work projects together. And he's like, you take that stuff? I'm like, it's the best thing ever. I'm like, I don't know why the whole world is in on collagen. And he's like, well, let's start a company. And I'm like, dude, are you crazy? I got a one-year-old behind me. Like, I'm not starting a company. And he's like, well, come on. Like, what do you think? What would it look like? So you had that conversation that just, it sparks you. So he did. And I said, well, you know, whatever we do, and we both said this at the exact same time, whatever we do, we got to do something cool for charity. Mm-hmm. And, and, and TJ had his approach on charitable giving and I had mine. Like, I wouldn't want to be a part of a brand that didn't have some sort of extra juice behind it. It just doesn't mean anything to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, I know the found, I, I, you know, I know the cause do something cool for charity. It's gotta be Glenn's charity. And Glenn's call sign in the Navy was bub. And this is the kind of product that Glenn would take religiously every day, chasing that fountain of youth. So I took the idea over to Mikey Ritland, you know, your, your buddy of mine, um, Shane Hyatt, Clint, a couple of the guys that, Glenn had worked with in the teams. And I'm like, Hey, does this seem weird? Like, tell me I'm crazy. And they all looked at me and Glenn's family and everyone said, Glenn would kick your ass. If you don't do this, like you, you have to do this. And that was it, man. Like the journey was, was, was started. I, I figured, you know, if I had a life transition when Glenn died to figure out how to manage an estate and a legacy, now I had to figure out a business. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd always worked in marketing, but now I had to I had to write the whole business plan. I had I had to be a part of the entire thing. Like, how much does it cost? Where do you source it from? How do you make how do you make this thing real? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, five years later, a social experiment to see if people cared about giving to a charitable cause um, has turned into a, a really really fun tribe of people that want to have life adventures and take care of themselves. And and we're right in the thick of it. Yeah. And it's a good way to, um, you know, do good work and also memorialize Glenn and what he was all about. Um, I like, I look, I've used your products longer than you guys have been a sponsor of us, but uh, you are a sponsor of us, which is also nice, but yeah, it's uh, they're great. The MCT oil powder is uh, I can't live without it. You know, if you're out there and you're taking, any kind of supplements and you're not taking MCT oil with them, then you're actually not absorbing any of it. So just so you know, uh, there's a German study from 2011, I think that points all this out. It's if there aren't the right kind of lipids, uh, uh, bonding to those vitamins that are going into your body, you're just pissing and shitting them out. It's fucking pointless. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? MCT so, is so important for yeah. that. It's the reason why like all your CBD products are bound in MCT oil. Yeah. Like you yeah. want it to work. And yeah, you need that carrier. Vehicle. So it's you know it's it's uh, do your own research on this stuff. We've talked about it on Drink Your Bros before. Now we're talking about it here. I mean, the best thing you can be for other people is there for them and have the ability to do what they need you to do. And you can't do that if you're all fucked up mentally no. and physically. Right. So take care of yourself uh, and, you know, live your life in a way that honors the sacrifice that people have made for you to be where you are today. Uh, look, Sean, I really appreciate you coming on today. This is always a great conversation to have. And I, I really do appreciate you sharing all this stuff with our audience. Thanks, man. I, you know, I'm, happy to share I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to come on here and, and have this conversation and you know every time i i talk about glenn or the things that he's stood for it, it lights a little fire inside of me so and hopefully that does for for everyone who's tuning in just to level up live your life a little bit better and and you know like and go do some cool shit uh yeah it does for me as well uh again thanks for coming on we'll uh We'll have you back sometime soon and talk about all of this. In the meantime, you guys go to bubsnaturals.com. I think our code is drinking bros. Yep. So use that. Get these products. They work. They're the best. Uh, affordable as well. And you're supporting a good cause. Uh, again, thanks for coming on today. We really appreciate it. And uh, appreciate all of you for watching and listening. This has been Citizen. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.